This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for May 11th, 2020. We've had different views on the interactions between black men and American police on this podcast before. So here's another view from a university professor who specializes in the data behind these events. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. In a few minutes, we'll have this. I've studied policing for a decade. I've worked with dozens of police departments and police officers. Mm -hmm. Most police officers never shoot their weapon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting statistic that most people do. You don't get from cop shows on TV. The majority of cops never fire their weapon while on duty in the whole of their career. Yeah, of course. So, So that means when they do, it's something we need to pay attention to. And let me tell you why we need to pay attention to it. It's because it's the end of a spectrum of a long line of policing behaviors. That's coming up shortly. But first, I want to thank all of my donors on Patreon. I really appreciate everyone who contributes. Patreon is a website that allows people to donate a buck or two per podcast or per month. And that helps me to devote more time to research and finding interesting guests for the podcast. And if you think that you could do the same as them, there's details on the website and at the end of the show. I've talked about Venezuela before. It's a country that has one of the largest oil reserves in the world, but still suffers from huge poverty and inequality because of a series of terrible governments. Up to a decade ago, the right were embarrassed to talk about Venezuela because it was governed by a democratically elected left-wing government that had taken power from hugely corrupt predecessors who had kept the oil wealth for a tiny elite, leaving most of the country impoverished. Venezuela became a socialist country where the media was free enough not to be called censored, The corruption was modest enough to be ignored, and the oil was flowing fast enough not to notice the economic incompetence. But the oil business and the largesse that it allowed the government to dole out basically wiped out the rest of the economy. When the oil prices fell, more and more blatant election fixing and the closing down of more opposition-supporting TV stations was required to keep the government in power, and it began to be the left that was embarrassed about Venezuela. And there are plenty of reasons to be embarrassed. The left-wing government, first led by the charismatic Hugo Chavez and later by the decidedly uncharismatic Nicolas Maduro, have handled the economic difficulties with a spectacular level of incompetence, making things far worse with idiotic policies. When the price of sugar shot up because of shortages the government introduced a law mandating a maximum price at which sugar could be sold. Predictably, people just stopped producing and selling sugar, to such an extent that Coca-Cola had to pull out of the country because they couldn't produce their product. So, not all bad then. But when the price of toilet paper shot up, the government tried a different trick. They seized factories producing it. This is verbatim what the BBC wrote about it at the time. 
the Venezuelan government has taken over a toilet paper factory to avoid any scarcity of the product. The National Guard has taken control of the plant and officers will monitor production and distribution. Earlier this year, officials ordered millions of toilet rolls to be imported to counter a chronic shortage. Last week, President Nicolas Maduro created a special committee to tackle the problem which the government blames on unscrupulous traders. If your government has to set up a special committee just to make sure you can wipe your ass, you may be governed by an economic incompetent. Things came to a head in 2018 when Maduro was elected in a fixed election and an opposition leader, Juan Guaido, declared himself president. Guaido was recognized by the US and many Western and South American countries as the legitimate president, but the organs of state in Venezuela don't, and he's been left looking a little silly. He tried to stage a coup about a year ago, which failed miserably, with only a few dozen soldiers taking his side. The latest installment in this sorry tale has gotten surprisingly little attention. Unsatisfied with the ability of the Venezuelan military to install him in power, it seems that the presidential pretender, Guaido, wanted to hire foreign mercenaries to do the job. In The Prince, a book of advice for aspiring leaders, Niccolo Machiavelli, who gave us the word Machiavellian, warns them not to use mercenaries. They're just not reliable. Guaido obviously didn't read his Machiavelli, He's denying it now, but it's clear that he was involved in hiring the mercenaries, even if he broke relations with them later, and these clowns went ahead anyway, apparently motivated by the $15 million bounty that the US has placed on Maduro. They were planning to kidnap him and deliver him to Florida. It turns out that knuckleheads who leverage a fantasy land about their modest military careers to live in a fantasy land about being private James Bonds don't fare so well when they collide with reality, and they're now cooling their heels in what I guess is a not very cool, unair-conditioned Venezuelan prison. Knuckleheads are knuckleheads, tinpot dictators are tinpot dictators, and I guess failed aspiring tinpot dictators are another rung down the ladder. But what about the US State Department offering a $15 million bounty for the head of a foreign country? It's phrased as a reward for information leading to the capture, but it would take an idiot not to realize that this is basically a wanted dead or alive poster. And after the coup attempt, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said that the US was not directly involved, which is about as non-denial as a non-denial denial can get. Although he said that if they had been directly involved, it would have gone differently. I bet. There are lots of reasons not to like Maduro, and his claim to democratic legitimacy is weak, to say the least. As President Trump himself said of another dictator, Maduro isn't the only one with a dodgy record. If the US thinks that it's a good idea to have a world where it's normal for presidents to offer prizes for each other's heads, then they haven't been studying their Machiavelli much either. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. 
On the line, I have Dr. Rayshawn Ray. He is Associate Professor of Sociology and the Executive Director of the Lab for Applied Social Science Research at the University of Maryland in College Park. He's also the co-author of a book called How Families Matter, Simply Complicated Intersections on Race, Gender and Work. And he describes his research as being about racial and social inequality with a particular focus on police-civilian relations and men's treatment of women. And those are two pretty hot topics, Rayshawn. Um, but to start with the first one, it's a very live issue, at least it was up to very recently, about how black men and the police interact in the United States. And there's two very clear trains of thought on that. And one of them, to put, the provo- to put it provocatively to you, one of them is young black men get what they deserve from the police. Do you think that's wrong and why? So first off, thank you for having me on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely excited to have this conversation. So as, as it relates to people stating that, that black men in particular get what they deserve, um, the empirical data simply don't support this. There's one stat that is extremely key that I often start with. It solves a lot of the issues when people start the conversation that way, Mm -hmm. which is that uh, black Americans are 3.5 times more likely to be killed by the police Mm -hmm. when they're not attacking, nor when they have a weapon. Who do those data come from? Those data come directly from police officers themselves that's reported directly to the FBI. Mm -hmm. Now we have data on 16 states in the in, in America. Now, of course, there have been others, The Guardian and, and Washington Post, New York Times, who have compiled additional data sets of, of uh, justifiable homicides and police killings. Mm-hmm. But as a are formally collecting data from the FBI and the Department of Justice, we know how many people get the flu every year. We know how many people get killed by jellyfish, but we don't know how many people are killed by the police. That should actually bother us all. So when people talk about people getting what they deserve, we're not talking about someone who was who had a gun and pulled it on the police and was trying to trying to hurt the police or someone else, according to the police officers, when they're asked, was the person who you just killed, were they attacking you? No. Did they have a weapon? No. And we still see this racial disparity. That suggests that race and racism are the causes of that. Not okay, pause, pause with that, Rachel, for a second. Pause with that, because what you say is very interesting. And you say that in a case where there is no attack on the police and no weapon held by the person who dies, a black person is, did you say, 3.5 times more likely to be killed than a white person? Was that the statistic you gave? Yes. And yes, then, that is- then, then my question is, how big is that data set? Is that a very large data set? Well, sure. I mean, if we're talking about since we've had the data, say, since the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about 60 years. And we're talking about in any given year, police officers kill well over a thousand people. So that means that a person in the United States is killed about every 20 hours. I would say that's quite a bit. And so, I would no, say no, but, but you're using a subset, Rachel, you're using a subset of that, of where actually the police say they were not. And I, I'm, it strikes me that whether it's true or not, it seems improbable to me well, that it is true. Would say, no, <laughs> it's, not, it's not whether or not it's true or not. It is true. No, no, no. Whether it is true that they have no weapon and are not attacking the police, it seems to me that would be only a small subset of the people who are killed by the police. Do you have that figure? A small subset of the people who are killed overall by the police. Yes. 
No, it's, it's not. It's not as small as people think. In fact, it represents a, a fairly uh, sizable percentage of the people who are actually killed by the police. Because see, this is the thing that people have to realize mm-hmm. about policing. I've studied policing for a decade. I've worked with dozens of police departments and police officers. Mm-hmm. Most police officers never shoot their weapon. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's an interesting overall, statistic oh, that most people do, that you don't get from cop shows on TV. The majority of cops never fire their weapon while on duty yeah. in the whole of their career. Yeah, of course. So, so that means when they do, it's something we need to pay attention to. And let me tell you why we need to pay attention to it. It's because it's the end of a spectrum of a long line of policing behaviors mm-hmm. before a police officer even gets to the point where they pull their weapon and pull the trigger. There have been a series of interactions that have happened between themselves and other people, oftentimes the person who they had this fatal encounter with, but also the dispatcher and what they said, the person who made the call and told them about something, um, the partner or the other police officers on duty, the place as well matters. So there are other factors that play a role in this. The point of that is that if we see these racial disparities when it comes to police officers um, shooting their weapon or killing someone when they're not armed and they're not attacking, then that means the racial disparities that exist down the pipeline, downstream, mm-hmm. are even larger. For example, there was a study done in New York City of 700,000 police stops. And of those 700,000 police stops, what percentage of these stops would you say they found contraband on someone? Like, in other words, they found someone who had a gun, drugs, who had a, had a criminal record. What percentage would you say? I don't know, but I'm sure you're going to tell me. I am going to tell you. Two percent. Two percent. And so, do, so you, do you feel, and you say, you say you've studied policing, Rayshon, do you feel that it's possible that those stop and searches, those police stops, have had any other policing goal? Of course. Yeah, see, that's the thing. Like, no policy, doing work on policy, I don't know hardly any policy that we actually put in place that's only 2% successful and we keep funding it. And this is the reason why the New York State Supreme Court actually ruled stop and frisk as illegal and, and racial. Because what they actually found was that these stops were disproportionately in black and Latino neighborhoods, mm-hmm. and blacks were disproportionately more, disproportionately more likely to have force use on them. 50% of the time that force was used, it was used on blacks. Mm-hmm. Um, a majority of the people who were actually arrested were arrested for resisting arrest. Well, you think if you stop someone, they don't have anything on them, they haven't done anything wrong, and they say, why are you touching me? Why are you trying to search me? Then... Yeah, okay, it's, it's a very small percentage who they end up arresting. That's because those stops, again, to your point, aren't about finding something on a person. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's about aiming to over-police certain communities, and these communities happen to be predominantly black. Okay, and that's actually uh, two things that are going parallel that may or may not be coinciding. And you say that they're over-policing particular communities, and those communities are predominantly black. Are you sure they're over-policing? There are some places in the United States, particular areas of particular cities, that have simply jaw-dropping levels of crime vastly higher than the rest of the country, to the point that a very small proportion, and I was looking it up for this podcast, a very small proportion, and it seems like about 2% of the counties in the United States account for half of the murders in the U.S., and more than half of the counties in the U.S. have no murders at all. Isn't it reasonable that police would most heavily police those areas that are most affected by crime 
And if they are also where a lot of minorities live, that's who they're going to come in contact with. So if we were only talking about 2% of census tracts or zip codes being mm-hmm. over police, mm-hmm. we wouldn't be having this conversation. But that's not what we're talking about. Even in, na- even in predominantly black neighborhoods where crime is not high, and there are, there are many of them in the United mm-hmm. States, to your point, it's only 2% of them, and the United States is highly segregated by race and class. So there mm-hmm. are tons of predominantly black neighborhoods that don't have crime. Yes, yeah, we, but, should, we, should, we, should, we should say that. Yeah, I'm talking about 2% of all of the counties. That right, does, right, does right. Near, so, but, but nearly account for all of the counties the whole, that, that have a high black part population. part of the whole conversation. Yeah. you, you got to let me finish the point. Go ahead. My point is, if we were only talking about the 2% that is being over-policed, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about predominantly black neighborhoods being over-policed, controlling for mm-hmm. whether or not crime is there or not. Which means if it was all about crime, we wouldn't be having this conversation and I actually wouldn't be studying this topic because the main thing I would say is, no, the, the places that are actually experiencing over-policing is because there's more crime there. Similar to the response I make when people say that the officers who are committing uh, justifiable homicides are white male. And I'm like, no, that's actually not true. Like, I haven't found any research that I've done that suggests that the race of the officer or the gender of the officer matters. So I shut that down right then. I'm like, this isn't a conversation about who the officer is. The same way that this isn't a conversation about the level of crime in a neighborhood, mm-hmm. this is about the racial composition of the neighborhood. And we have to be very clear that it's about the racial composition of the neighborhood and not about the crime in the neighborhood. If it was solely about the crime in the neighborhood, that would be what I would actually be talking about. But the and just, just for clarity, Rayshon, just for clarity, Rayshon, how do you define over-policing? Over-policing means relative to the amount of crime in the neighborhood, that we actually see more police presence, we see more stops, we see more frisk, and we actually see more use of force, and then ultimately we see more shootings and ultimately deaths. That's what over-policing means. So the same way I just said that in these in across New York City, they only found 2% of contraband on these people. Mm-hmm. If they were only doing that in the neighborhoods where crime was extremely high, you know what? That rate of 2% would go extremely high, mm-hmm. but it doesn't because they're also doing it in neighborhoods where the crime levels aren't to the levels where people think. Why? You know, overwhelmingly why? black neighborhoods, people aren't just, why, why what? Why are they doing that in your, in your opinion? Well, as I, said, as I said earlier, it's about controlling a population and a group of people. It's not necessarily about keeping those people safe. You know, one of the things I know, having several police officers in my family, is that police officers go to work every single day trying to help make their community safe. They're responding to calls. They're putting themselves in harm's way. And oftentimes, they're simply going to where they're assigned to do, to do those tasks. Mm-hmm. But if you look across the board, and I've lived in a host of different neighborhoods around the United States and in Europe, and one thing I know is studying race and class and gender in place mm-hmm. is that in certain neighborhoods I've lived in, And overwhelmingly, I've lived in, I mean, when I was growing up, there were some places where crime was relatively high. But then there have been other neighborhoods I've lived in that's been relatively safe and that's been predominantly black or predominantly white. Mm -hmm. And you see differences in the police presence in those places, even when the crime is basically similar. And that becomes the difference. So that means when you run a statistical analysis, which I do statistics, when you run a statistical analysis, the racial composition, the zip code is what pops out. 
not necessarily how much crime is being committed there. So, oh, so let me let me clarify that for the listeners. So you're saying that this, as you measure it, over policing—that's to say, a very high level of police stops, of arrests, and so forth—are you saying that there is a better statistical fit for that? The the correlation between over policing and the racial group in the area than there is between over-policing and the rate of crime in the area. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Not only that, the other part that's extremely important for people to recognize about law enforcement in the U.S. in general is pretty much all of these statistics we have. And again, I use federal data and then I use localized data depending on what I'm doing, Mm -hmm. is that overwhelmingly we have deficit data. What that means is if you even think about the conversation we're having, we're only talking about really negative outcomes. Mm. That's because that's the only data we have. See, what I have and what I've been publishing on is I have data on the on the types of outcomes that we would like to see. Mm-hmm. See, what people don't get is that overwhelmingly police officers go out and interact with people every single day and nothing happens. Mm-hmm. The person who they interact with goes home. The police officer goes home. That's ultimately what we want. But in cases where we don't see that happen, disproportionately, that tends to happen in predominantly black neighborhoods, particularly predominantly black neighborhoods that are low income. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a really good example. Baltimore, not far from where I am in Washington, Mm D.C., is there's a neighborhood called Sandtown, happens to be where Freddie Gray was from. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, he was he was killed in 2015 at his back, uh, broken during a police um, interaction. There are black men living in those neighborhoods who don't have a criminal record. Let me start there. See, that, see, that's the key point, right? They don't have a criminal record. So everything else we say about them is irrelevant to the fact that they were committing crimes. They don't have a, a criminal record. Mm-hmm. Who have been stopped nearly 100 times, who have been stopped about every month of their life for the past 10 or 20 years of their life. Mm-hmm. And mind you, they don't have a criminal record. So, so now let, let's think about this for a second. We've got to unpack this. Same way you, you're telling me to unpack this. Stuff. Let's unpack this. So if a person's been stopped about 100 times and they don't have a criminal record, we would expect for our law enforcement to be pretty good at identifying people who commit crime. So the fact that they are zero out of 100 suggests that it's not about whether or not the person is committing crime or not. It's about something else. And that something else is about over-policing those communities and aiming to control them. And who, when you say over-policing and aiming to control those communities, that kind of makes you sound like a little bit like a conspiracy theorist who believes that there's... No, it's that not conspiracy that at all, it's empirical data. Sure, sure, sure. This ain't about conspiracy. No, 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 but, but what I'm saying, Rayshon, what I'm saying, Rayshon, is... the only conspiracies if you don't have data. You say somebody wants to control that community. Who is it that wants to do that controlling? Yeah, well, first off, I want to clarify the conspiracy part because I actually don't like conspiracy being associated. With I, I was being, I was being humorous. I was being humorous, uh, Rayshon. Yeah, it's, uh, it's but not, my, not my, my point is that you know, conspiracy you, is like people saying people saying that COVID nineteen came from a lab instead of a bat because we don't have data on that. That that's not what we're talking about. We're mm-hmm. talking about we have empirical data from police departments and police officers themselves that show that of the people, and people just have to read about it. Like, it's in plain sight. People can read my research. People can read other people's research. It's not like it's a, it's a hidden finding. Mm-hmm. That in these neighborhoods, and, and see, let me tell you why it's so hard for people like you and other people to really grasp this. Because 
there are other people who have drastically different experiences with the police. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm one of these people because I told you I have several police officers in my family. So I know what good policing looks like on a personal level. And then I also know what it looks like on a professional level because I work with police departments and do a lot of work with police officers. Mm -hmm. And I know overwhelmingly, as I said before, most of them aren't pulling their gun. Most of them aren't doing those things. And I actually hope that we can eventually get to to, to the real, some of the real structural issues at play about how the reason why this is set up the way it is once we get past the fact that people are actually being over-policed. Mm-hmm. But part of this is thinking about the fact that when you see good policing and what policing should be like, that's the experiences that most white people have. Mm-hmm. So when you're telling them that these same people who they know who do good policing to them, smile at their kids, treat their kids well, that right down the street, they're doing something drastically different. Mm-hmm. It's hard for people cognitive, cognitively to wrap their head around that. Sure, and I want, to, I want to come on to that, Rishon. Rishon, I, I want to come on to that, but just very, very briefly, deal with the point that who is it who wants to do the controlling? Is there somebody somewhere in a lair uh, who's twirling their moustache and rubbing no, their hands together and saying, like, oh, hey, now like, I can c- control like the black one, community? No, it's not like it's one person. I mean, that's, no, that's silly. What it is structurally, and this is what people don't understand about organizational structure, is for structural racism to exist. You don't necessarily need a person pulling a lever somewhere doing something. Mm -hmm. Instead, as I try to go through with a series of interactions downstream, before we even get to justifiable homicide, there are a series of structured social interactions that put people together with one another. Mm -hmm. Give me a couple minutes break it down. Let's just look at the criminal justice system as a whole. Okay, a person is stopped by the police. Say two people are stopped by the police. Let's just say one is white and one is black. Let's kind of follow their experiences based on the typical research. Based on the typical research, both of them are stopped. Um, One is going to be more likely to be frisked versus the other. And that New York study, this is one of the interesting things they found about this study. So whites were much less likely to be frisked um, not only stopped, but then also frisk once they were stopped. Mm-hmm. But whites were actually more likely to be found with contraband on them. Now, does mm-hmm. this mean that whites are more likely to commit crime? Of course not. Instead, what it is, is that when police officers see a white person engaging in behavior, they actually use that person's behavior to determine whether or not they should stop them. So they're more likely to be accurate. When they stop a black person, they're using that person's blackness, what they look like, as a justification to stop them rather than their behavior. So then when it comes to pinpointing criminal behavior, they're less likely to be accurate. So that's stage one. So now let's move on. Okay, one person is likely to be frisked. Say the person resists. Mm -hmm. They're more likely to be arrested. Now they're charged and that person's black. The white person has went all along with their life. But let's say that white person has something on them. So now both have been charged and arrested. When they go to court, or even before court with plea deals, whites are more likely than blacks to get plea deals. What that means then is that if we string out the continuum, blacks for the same charge, the same penalty, they are more likely to get convicted for it, they are less likely to get a plea deal, Mm -hmm. and they're more likely to get longer sentences in prison. Mm -hmm. Then let's fast forward to when people get out of prison. There's a long body of research, Diva Pager, who recently passed away, professor at Princeton and Harvard. She's done this work for the past 15, 20 years or so. What she found is that when people get out of prison and they're returning citizens trying to go back to work, mm-hmm. she found that not only do whites without a criminal record, are they more likely to get called back 
than blacks, but whites with a criminal record are more likely to get called back for a job and hired than blacks without a criminal record. And what is that study? Give, give me that study exactly. So whites with... Whites sure, with no, I, I get the point, but is that a large-scale study? Yeah, it's a large-scale study. It's called the, the main book is called Marked. There's been tons of research on this. Tons of research. It's, it's all over the place. Like, like again, this stuff isn't... I mean, <laughs> these things are published. Not only are they published, but they're published in some of the best journals in the world. So for if people don't know about them, they're just not looking for them. Because for D- Diva Page's work, similar to some of my work, mm-hmm. has been highlighted throughout the media, throughout the world. And all people have to do is search it and find it. The question is, is whether or not they actually want to find it or not. And they actually want to admit to themselves that that's what's going on, which is something I can't control for people. Okay. One other topic then that I want to talk to you about, and I don't want to diminish the importance of the actual actions, but the number of people who are killed by police compared to other sorts of death, and we're talking about the uh, COVID-19 these days very frequently, is relatively small. The the uh, mortality rate from being killed by police compared to, let's say, heart attacks or lung cancer, whatever, is a relatively slight risk. But it is enormously prominent in culture. And let me throw out a theory to you and ask you whether you think that it flies, particularly in your experience. I think that one of the reasons that this theme of black men in particular being killed by police is so prominent in culture is because it is representative of, for black people, of their interactions with very often police, possibly also other white authority figures. And not being killed, not being threatened, not being injured, but just being treated with discourtesy, being treated with uh, uh, unfairly and perhaps more minor ways, all the way up to, as you say there, getting harsher sentences for crimes and so forth. Do you think that when a black person reads a news story of black man killed by police, they think to their own personal history in a way that white people don't. And that is making those two different groups have a very different perception of that event. So overwhelmingly, I agree with that. I think the one wrinkle I'll add is I think everyone, when they read something in the newspaper, they reflect back to their own experiences. Mm -hmm. The difference is that black men and black women as well, they reflect back to the experiences they've had with police And white people also reflect back to the experiences they've had with police. Mm -hmm. And those experiences are drastically different. And to your point, interactions with authority figures are drastically different. You know, to your point as well, when we're talking about justifiable homicides or, you know, what what we call in the United States death by legal intervention. These are like the the CDC, Department of Justice, FBI terms. Um, I don't really like saying police killings or something like that. I think Mm -hmm. we should say officer involved shootings and those types of things. Um, particularly until things kind of play out in the courts. But to your point, that that is a small percentage. But what's not a small percentage are the hundreds of thousands of people, like that that study I told you of 700,000 police stops, mm-hmm. who or the many people who get charged with a similar crime and they see the differences in court. I mean, I've sat in court and done this research. Another one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Nicole Gonzalez-Van Cleve, has a phenomenal book, award-winning book called Crook County. It's about Cook County Mm. in Chicago. 
and she studied courts. And I can tell you from sitting in courts, you can sit in courtrooms around the country, from Indiana to California to Illinois to Maryland to D.C., and I've done it all. Mm -hmm. And you'll see two people come up for the same crime, and the judge will give them a completely different sentence. And then you'll look at them and you'll say, basically, the only thing different with them is their race. So to your point, it's not like like the, the end game is whether or not a person is killed by the police or not. Like nobody wants that. Everybody wants police officers as well as civilians getting home safely. But the downstream is that so many people have been stopped by the police for what they consider to be no reason. And if the police just leave, don't charge them with anything. Don't fill out a report because that's the other thing I know from doing a lot of qualitative work, ethnographic observations with police officers and police departments is they interact with so many people. They don't fill reports out all the time. Mm -hmm. Like there's something that just happened in Baltimore. You mentioned COVID-19 because I think it's an important point to make is in um, New York City or or Baltimore. There was a police officer who just went through um, a low income, predominantly black neighborhood Mm -hmm. and started coughing as he was walking through this apartment complex. I mean, in an era where we are dealing with a pandemic, as easily as that virus spreads, that is criminal to do that. I mean, there was a bus driver in Wisconsin, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, who died, who made a viral video where he was saying a woman got on the bus and coughed without covering her mouth. He was like, I cannot believe she would do that. I'm out here. And that's the thing. African-Americans in the U.S. are overrepresented when it comes to these new essential workers. Black people represent represent about 20 percent of cashiers and grocery store clerks and bus drivers and train Mm -hmm. drivers, you know, um, frontline workers, restauranteurs, all this sort of thing compared to, you know, roughly the 13, 14 percent of population that blacks are. So the everyday experiences that black people have from a social psychological standpoint forms what we call a collective memory Mm -hmm. of remembering back to the other experiences they've had and the experiences that other people have had. And everybody does this. It's just that unfortunately in the U.S. context, and again, we see this playing out now with COVID-19, where blacks are about twice as likely as whites to be dying from COVID-19. That's not simply because black people have pre-existing conditions. It's just like police stops and police killings are solely about crime. Instead, it's about the structure that they're embedded in, where predominantly black neighborhoods, not only are they over-policed, but they have less grocery stores, they have less pharmacies, they have less green space, they have uh, less lighting. All of these combine to less safety and other sort of things that invade in people's lives. And I can tell you, being a professor, um, that I am in spaces that, uh, particularly in predominantly white spaces, where people's social positions and their social interactions are drastically different than it is for black people in other neighborhoods. Dr. Rayshawn Ray, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Maryland, College Park, also co-author of How Families Matter. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. Never miss a show. Follow at Challenging O on Twitter and like Challenging Opinions on Facebook for updates on each show's contents. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook follow at Challenging O on Twitter, and follow Dr. Rayshawn Ray at Sociologist Ray, and get in touch with me if you think you can suggest a guest or a topic for a future show. Thanks to everyone who's signed up as a patron on Patreon so far. I really appreciate them helping me to devote more time to researching topics and guests. And if you could do the same as them, and donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, go to patreon.com slash challenging opinions, or you'll find the link on the website. 
Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming up next Monday, that's May 18th, I'll be talking to the former Vice President of the World Bank, Ottaviano Canuto, about how the world economy might recover from the COVID crisis. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening.